Welcome to another episode of Tournament Talk. It's Tyler Childs here in the Sport Travel Studios. I'm lucky enough today to be joined by Peter Feenstra, the Tournament Director for the London Junior Knights. Uh, Peter is just on the back end of his very busy fall schedule uh, up here in the north. It's hockey time, so he is joining us today. Peter, just want to do an intro. Why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself, where you came from, how you got hooked up into the tournament directing world, uh, and, and really what, what you're doing over there with the Junior Knights these days. Okay, I'm Peter Feenstra. I've been uh, doing tournaments since my son was about seven years old. He's now 33, so it's been a long time since tournaments. I started helping uh, a guy named Jim Lavelle with tournaments back in the, back then, and he ended up moving out of town, so I took over the tournaments at that time. Um, I was kind of interested in doing tournaments because I'd been to a couple tournaments where I felt things weren't, weren't fair where kids just didn't enjoy themselves or parents didn't thought they were getting ripped off so that was my first intro into tournaments trying to make something that was uh everybody would go home from and say hey that was a good tournament we uh enjoyed ourselves uh we were going to come back and i kind of based all my tournaments on that after on some of my past experience with other tournaments so when you first started into the space was there really uh, the business model that there is today. I mean, we, obviously the evolution up here in Canada has been very different than what maybe we've seen on the state side. Uh, when you first got into it, was it just on the cusp of people starting to measure the revenue or was it already, um, you know, kind of sought as, as a business concept? Cause I know there's smaller organizations that, Hey, we have to run a tournament. We're going to, it generates a little bit of revenue and we do it because we have to, was that the mentality back then or was it already, moving towards well, let's generate as much revenue as we can. The mentality was sort of to have a tournament for everybody in your organization. So you had a tournament for the your competitive kids, you had a tournament for your host league kids. So we ran two tournaments, well, actually three tournaments a year because we also ran one for the Tyke program. It was a little Tyke, it was called Under 7 at the time. Um, and it was just more like a festival. Mm-hmm. So we ran three tournaments at that time just to give everybody a tournament but then it started becoming a revenue stream where the revenue we could make some revenue off the tournaments and uh, we went from there and started you know recruiting more and more teams and and uh, we had one tournament about 170 host league tournament teams we were one of the few host league tournaments in the uh, in the province at Christmas time at that time. So we had, we would fill up very quickly on that tournament. Well, and I think it's really interesting. Like I grew up in a small town, so I always looked at tournaments as a very unique kind of experience. Uh, we, we, we did it to break outside of the mold. We did it to challenge ourselves. Um, and I know for, as a small center, the cost was always a thing for, for our parents and, and our teams. And, and I think, you know, you touched on it really quickly. Like there was, there was that beginning of an era where people feel like they were starting to get ripped off at these tournaments. They would go, they knew what maybe the other market experience would look like. They knew the cost uh, was, was in line with what they were getting. And then people started to increase the margins. And I mean, major centers have different costs uh, attached to city ice and all that other stuff that kind of happened. But um, you know, it's really been a piece that we we talk about a lot in terms of um, the value driven through after cost. And 
I think that's been the biggest change in the industry. Is there things that, that you've done over the years that you've been able to maintain the value you've added, even though costs have increased via inflation or, you know, increase in, in supplier costs, uh, whether that be, you know, gifts or ice or officiating, what, what are the keys that, that you've focused on to keep value? Well, I try to keep the cost relevant relevant to other tournaments. Try to, you know, look at what other tournaments are charging. You try not to, you know, charge more than anybody else. Try to make sure that they, they're coming there, they're going to get four hockey games, and that they're not going to win four hockey games and go home, that they're going to win four hockey games and continue on playing for the rest of the weekend. Right. Or at least one more game and, and into a round robin, past the round robin. Nothing worse than I, I've been to tournaments where you won, went three and all and ended up going home because three other teams went three and all and and they only took two teams on. Yeah, we talk about that all the time. We we see this like setup in tournaments where they don't look at that appreciation at the athlete level, right? If you win two games or three games, you should keep playing, right? So rather than, you know, driving through those four game minimums in a round robin and setting up awkward division sizes, like shrink the division sizes, have an extra playoff round and the good teams get a couple extra games, but you make sure everyone has that positive experience. I think that's kind of what you're touching on a little bit, but um, in terms of the price point, like what's been the biggest challenge um, to keep those price points in line? Has it been the facility? costs mainly well the, the the key point is not burning ice right you have a lot of times a lot of time burning between night games it it it's you know when you're looking at 200 an hour you know 15 minutes burnt is 50 dollars burnt um whereas if you can get the games so that they're you want to keep the games on time but you don't want a whole lot of time sitting empty where where you're paying for the for the ice right so that's your biggest cost is ice um you know, referees. The other thing is helpers. Sometimes you're going to have to pay helpers because you just can't find enough volunteers to to do the job for you. Yeah, and, and you know, looking at a budget and setting a budget, I think that's something that is becoming more and more evident in the Canadian market in terms of the volunteer usage. I, I know in years past there was rampant volunteers people had a lot more time to give um they chose to give a lot more time uh, combating that what's what's your biggest challenge obviously you have you've mentioned you have to pay some of them to do that uh i i think there's a good opportunity for for young people to be involved but what's your biggest challenge in getting that support you need for each event it's it's money it's, it's it's money. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 uh, you know teams teams that are in the tournament they don't want they don't want they don't feel that they you know should need the help because they're already paying to be in the tournament. Mm -hmm. Teams that aren't in the tournament are usually playing out of town, so it's hard to find the volunteers from those teams to help out with you. So it's it's trying to get people to understand that this is revenue revenue made from the tournaments is less that they have to pay in in uh, registration fees etc for their players and that's a hard concept some people would rather just taste they don't they don't they don't mind paying to, for their pit kids to play they they would and they don't see the value in, in running a tournament. Yeah, they look at the value of their own time instead of the value of the organizational's time and all that stuff. But, right. you know, I think the key thing that I like to highlight a little bit in this conversation is more or less taking it to the people that aren't involved in the tournaments at any levels, those ones we just talked about. And when they do, you know, kind of look at a, a cost and say, well, why did it go up this year? Well, 
because you and others aren't volunteering your time. And that's the stuff that is becoming more and more of a hot topic in the space because ultimately we're moving into an era where there's less and less volunteers. So as a result, there's more and more cost. And, you know, there's some concerning numbers out of Hockey Canada in terms of the participation levels in hockey um, because it's such a busy sport, because uh, it's it's a high um, economic scale type sport. You know, the affluent are, are participating. And as a result, those families often are busier. Uh, and so there's that conflict that kind of dives in in hockey that, you don't see in some other sports um, because people have more time. They, they, they live their lives a little bit differently and it's no fault to anyone. It's just a matter of the circumstances. So um, knowing all of those things, what are the things that you've kind of hung your hat on as a tournament director, the things that you would consider your staples for success um, and the things, if you were to give advice for somebody just starting the things that they would focus on that would make them successful? Well, I think you have to focus on a schedule. You don't want you want to schedule games in facilities that people enjoy being in. You've got, I mean, you've got some. You see some tournaments, and they're putting you in every little corner of every city. They're putting you in in some of the rinks that are falling apart, and people don't, you know, they come there and and they, you know, I, I when I would do a tournament, I want people to see the best part of the city of London. I don't want to want them to see the the i mean and we know we've got good facilities in london some some areas that some cities have don't have the facilities that london has so we're we're lucky in the fact that we've got really good facilities that we can put teams in tournaments you know we've got a four pad we've got a three pad we've got a, a couple of really nice two pad arenas that we could put it in but if you have to start taking people and moving them out of town for an hour drive or half hour drive just to to play a hockey game you know and then they've already got to drive across town for a hotel uh people people get turned off by that sort of uh traveling around they you know they don't mind traveling for 10 minutes from one facility to another but they don't really want to be all over the countryside well and especially in the winter months too right when it's cold and miserable and the snow's out there and it's a little unsafe to travel in some days right so you know keeping people isolated is definitely fun but um you know the 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 thing that uh i always try to talk to people about is having having a plan right and and predicting ahead so when it comes to your schedule are you setting the number of games based on your ice uh, and, and therefore deciding how many you want in each division. I know a lot of tournament conveners sometimes work the other way where they uh, set their, their schedule based on the number of registrations. So well, how, I, how do you I, handle that? I, yeah, I set, I, I, I know what ice I've got starting in, I normally get have my ice or know, have a good idea what ice I have in March. And then I look and say, okay, if you know, I need basically two hours for every team that's in the tournament, so or two game times for every teams in a tournament so if i've got 80 team 80 ice slots then i can take 40 teams if i've got 120 ice slots i can take 60 teams so and then it's based on that you know there's uh like the dufton tournament we we sit with we stick with 16 bantam 16 minor bantam and then we go you know whatever ice we have left we'll put in minor midgets because it's it's more a minor midget type of tournaments right other tournaments it's you know if we were a little slow in one division, we'll take more in another division. But we try and limit the numbers. And it's always nice to have a waiting list in the fact that if some team drops out the last minute or, or a month in, away from the tournament, you can, uh, you can always find a team from your waiting list to, to fill the spot. Whereas if you've taken every single team, then there's not a lot of teams to fill in 
afterwards. Absolutely. And, and that's, you know, one of the things that we always chat about is just that plan and kind of the preparation for those numbers. Do you ever look at the previous year's numbers to kind of predict some of those changes in division volume? Is that something you, you like to do or do you kind of let, let it happen as it is? Well, I, I look at I look at the previous year's numbers. I mean, it, I, I pretty well know that you're going to get, you know, uh, in, in the you know, minor midget is is a strong division. You're going to get a lot of minor midget teams compared to Bantam. In in the other tournaments, it might be Peewee is strong every year, whereas minor Peewee is a little weaker. So, it depends on the other tournaments around around the area too, as to where how many teams you can take. Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, again, we we've talked about it a lot in this show, and just more or less going through um, navigating your marketplace and learning what's around you, seeing what's competitive in that specific time frame. You don't want to go back-to-back weekends. You certainly don't want to go same dates with some of the other elite events in your space. So understanding those gaps, I think, is what Peter's alluding to and trying to just have that preparation, understanding what's happening. Um, you know, one of the things that um, I've always seen from you with, with our dealings together has always been your ability to kind of navigate tough customers. And as, as we all know, the tournament space can have tough customers in terms of wanting to negotiate and wanting to push back and wanting to get more when, you know, there, there's not really any room to wiggle these sort of things. So when you get a tough customer, what, what do you do with those situations? How do you handle them? And, and then again, if you were giving advice to somebody just diving into this conversation, how, how would you suggest they handle a tough customer in this, this world that we live in? Well, I mean, it depends what what the tough customer is. I mean, if they're they're complaining about hotel rooms or whatever, well, the bottom line is is we take they get the hotel rooms that are left available. I mean, if they they procrastinate and wait till the last minute to book a hotel room, the chances are they're not going to get something they really like. Um, it, that's I mean, we can't create hotel rooms. Um, you know, they want to negotiate a price for the tournament or whatever. Well, the bottom line is is. I've got enough teams to fill my tournaments every year. I don't really need to negotiate with anybody as far as as a price is concerned. Right. You know, this is the price. This is what we normally get, and it's not fair to charge somebody less than uh, what everybody else is paying. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. We see it a lot with, like, last-minute additions to fill divisions is where there's a lot of negotiating. And, And I always try to communicate to tournament directors that you're setting yourself up for a very slippery slope because when they come back next year, they know there's wiggle room. Um, and they can play the well you owe me card and all that fun stuff that can kind of come from that so you know one of the things that I've always respected about how you've handled it is you know here's the rules we play within them and anything that's outside of that we can talk but you know pricing and structure and feedback is all in this tight little bubble and I think it's one thing that I've always asked other conveners to kind of be consistent with um, is really just sit and and think about the repercussions of it and and work through the problem with the customer right so I'd like to get the tournaments booked and filled early and I, I know that I can fill them by you know September's October tournaments by the end of May so end uh, of May comes the tournament's full I mean I may have one or two open spots in a division but when you don't want to cut it. I know they're going to get full and so I don't need really need to negotiate and you certainly don't want to cutting into golf season. No. So that's the other part of it as well. Right. So, you know, preparation and working ahead of the curve is is definitely half the battle. And, you know, we talk again a lot with, with getting twelve month windows. That's that's what we talk about a lot is get your twelve month window set, have a plan for you know, selling your event 
much earlier uh, to your point than than what we see a lot. Like the sports that that usually sell later, baseball, basketball, uh, some soccer, uh, tend to be the, the ones that registration comes a little bit later. And ironically, they seem to have a lot of those headaches that you alluded to in terms of hotel room and rate, in terms of uh, registration being available and or price points changing. But the ones that work ahead, hockey is is really good at being further ahead of the curve. Uh, Lacrosse is usually pretty organized and volleyball is usually pretty organized. So those ones generally are are far enough out. They they don't face as many of these headaches. So it's a good lesson to take away from from today's episode is being prepared can also make um, all of those things easier on the team side as well. So um, with that said, Peter, is there anything that... um, Well, the other thing with getting schedules done early or getting teams registered early and everything, get the schedules done early they can book their hotel rooms etc based on on the schedule you have if there's any issues with the schedule you've got lots of time to clean the schedule up too many tournaments they give you a schedule a week before and there's some conflicts there and it's it's it and all of a sudden you've got all the got teams that are upset because they're playing at six they're playing 7 a.m on saturday morning then they don't play again till uh, 7 a.m on the sunday morning and they're they're all upset that they have to stay in a hotel room for two nights when they could have you know put the games on the same day and they they got one hotel room instead so that's that's, that having having schedules done early allows teams to kind of give you their feedback on what what they like and don't like about your schedule yeah i agree we we see it all the time and not every event has the luxury of setting their schedule far in advance because of the seasonality or maybe you know there's different pain points to it i mean if you're back to the house league event conversation that that season works a little slower than maybe some of the AAA markets that that we see but you know at the same time you can still get far enough ahead in their schedule to accommodate for all of those things that that we're talking about whether it be hotel or travel um, or whether it just be you know family organization planning between games doing some of that team building stuff that happens at tournaments all that comes from the benefit of just being prepared and getting ahead of the curve so one of the things that that we always like to talk about is setting your schedule before you set your teams and then applying your teams into a team slot within that schedule and that way you know the wiggle room of your schedule and and it really depends on what you have set for ice or field or court time uh that allows you to do those things but um well that's true i mean i i basically have a schedule set without teams yeah and then we usually allow teams also we we the london knights have games usually on the fridays of our tournaments so what we do is we send a notice out to all the teams that want to go to the night's game we try and schedule them on the earlier games on the friday so they play friday morning friday afternoon so that they can go to the night's game and then we also give them sometimes the later saturday morning time so that the kids you know out late don't have to get up in the morning absolutely and we reverse the other teams that don't want to go to the night's game play the later games on the friday and we'll play the early games on the saturday so absolutely. the teams teams nothing worse than going to a tournament and your your kid plays both seven you play at 7 a.m both days and they don't really get a chance to enjoy the pool the night before or whatever. Yeah, no, exactly. And I mean, that's one of the things that uh, I think has changed the most in our industry over the last decade or so is that the the team building component has become less important. It's still a piece of the puzzle, but I know a lot of the tournaments I went to growing up were about the team building. 
right? Whereas now team building's there if we have time, right? And I think it comes back to um, the organization at the event level is can the event give us enough time to prepare the opportunities to team build, go out to the night's game, go out to, you know, dinner together, do all of those things that can happen around the event. And I think that's something that I think uh, you've always done really well. And and I why I wanted to, to bring you on the show today to kind of talk about some of these things, because I think it's really important for some of the younger generation of event directors to kind of learn about some of these little intricacies. Um, that said, with the, the next evolution of event directors coming on, what's the, the, the piece of advice that you would say that they're going to have to face the most uh, over the next five years? What, what do you think their biggest roadblock is going to be? Well, getting ice, mm-hmm. getting enough ice to run your, your events. Uh, parents, parents are wanting more. I mean, their costs are going up, so they, you have to try and keep the costs down to allow more teams to do go to the tournaments. I mean, and their leagues are starting to limit how many tournaments teams go to. So when you are running a tournament, you've got to run something that's top quality or, or you're not going to get the teams coming back. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we talk about value first, profit second a lot. And that's, I think, the big takeaway from from what you're saying there for me is that, you know, as the price comes up, you have to match the value to the increase in costs. And I think that's the challenge we have moving forward. Well, I think we can kind of end her there, Peter. I really appreciate you coming in today, um, sharing some insight and congrats on another successful season here. I know we're just wrapping up, but, um, you know, congrats on everything you've done and uh, to the London Knights organization, uh, the London Junior Knights, that, that you're you're doing all their events this season. Um, you're going to be back for next year to, to get everything up and running by May again? Sure. <laughs> we're already working on next year. That's right. Exactly. Working ahead, people. But until then, it's been another episode of Tournament Talk. Thank you all for listening. Uh, we'll see you next week.